happened to our babies? I know, they're both graduating from college. I know. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Felice. Um, let's see if I can find the beginning of my talk. Okay. So um, thank you, thank you for the invitation to be here. Good morning to everyone. Um, this is a distinct honor um, to be able to speak with you, and in particular um, to be able to speak at the lecture um, that is named for Dr. Kamides because he is actually um, a really important um, uh, key figure in the development of the New England Congenital Cardiology Association, as well as in my own um, growth as a cardiologist. Um, so I am Naomi Gothier, um, fully dredged up some old pictures that I haven't seen. Um, and um, I am currently at Boston Children's Hospital um, and was also one of the NECA founders and its president for most of the first decade. And when I received this nice invitation to talk about the lessons learned from NECA from the New England Congenital Cardiology Association, I thought, okay, well, what am I going to talk about? Um, I mean, it is fascinating to understand, you know, the intricate um, uh, new ideas for how to manage a hypoplastic left heart syndrome baby, et cetera, but I kind of thought that maybe there was something that was a little bit more broad. Um, and it struck me um, that one of the reasons that we formed NECO was to come together as a region, um, but the lessons that we really learned that I think were beyond what we had initially anticipated had to do with coming together as a community and, re and in result reducing some burnout. And that getting together and adding to our plates actually helped to make those plates seem like they could carry more. So I'm going to talk to you about when more meanings yield less burnout, lessons from NECA. So I think we all know our work is hard. I mean, it can be emotionally trying, it can be physically exhausting, obstacles, actual or perceived, can be frustrating. There's a slender margin for error in what we do in healthcare, and that can be very stressful. Our field is technically and intellectually demanding, and while that can be exhilarating and, and interesting, it, it really can be just that, demanding. And at times, I think we have all felt that you can't give enough of yourself for everyone. So why do we do what we do? Well, because our work is worth it. It is an absolute immense privilege to be a part of our patients' lives from babies on up. It is deeply meaningful. It is not hard to wake up in the morning and connect with why we go to work each day. There's a Japanese term called aikaigai, and, and it roughly translates to um, reason to get up in the morning. And there's a whole host of research, I believe all in adults, although maybe there's some in pediatrics, but certainly predominantly in adults. There's a whole host of research that shows that people who have higher degrees of this aikaigai have lower um, diseases across multiple realms, cardiovascular, diabetes, cancer, um, Alzheimer's, um, uh, better immune systems, just because they can measure this higher um, amount of meaning and purpose. Our work also has shown um, sort of consistently measurable advances. Um, in our times practicing, whether it's been a few years or whether it's been a few decades, we all can see advances in medical, technological, neurodevelopmental, and psychosocial advances for our children. That brings about an amazing amount of hope and optimism. Um, so we have an immense privilege, which is really something that we can appreciate or have some gratitude about. It's deeply meaningful. We can tap into that meaning and purpose. And there is this, this real sense of hope and optimism. So gratitude, meaning and purpose, optimism. These are key features that can combat burnout. We're lucky in pediatrics in that we have that. The challenge is to how do we hang on to that. 
So burnout is very prevalent um, by most of the um, studies. It's at least it's um, present in at least 50% of physicians. It's a scary statistic. By the way, burnout is of course um, present in um, non-physicians in the healthcare field, um, and obviously in fields outside of healthcare. Um, but I'm going to focus really um, speaking about physicians because that's where some of this research came out of. But please, it applies to all, and I don't think these lessons are specific to physicians. So burnout has um, variable definitions. It doesn't seem to have a consistent definition yet, but there's some key aspects that I think are common. And one is emotional exhaustion. There's a sense of depersonalization and cynicism. There's decreased effectiveness and sense of accomplishment. There's really sort of this checking out, and that not surprisingly leads to poorer quality of care, decreased patient satisfaction and safety, um, and decreased physician work effort. As a matter of fact, um, the, the Mayo Clinic has been studying this for over a decade, um, and in a um, uh, a really interesting article published about two years ago, they found that for every one single point that was higher on the burnout scale or lower in the satisfaction scale, one point yielded a 30-40% chance of decreased work <coughs> Throw some other numbers at you. There's an 80-20 split. It turns out that most physicians are at risk for burnout if we spend less than 20% of time considered most meaningful, personally meaningful. This is work, work meaningful, not, not outside hobby time. But if we spend less than 20% doing something that we really connect with and feel meaning, meaningful, we're at the highest risk. Matter of fact, for every 1% drop below 20, there's a dramatically increased risk of burnout. So we are willing to do up to 80% of things that are considered really sort of service work. It's part of the job where, where we understand we sacrifice a lot. We have to do these various tasks. That's just a part of the job. And we're willing to do that all the way up to 80% of our time. But once you start eating away at that 20%, we push ourselves hard enough. Once you start eating away at that 20%, then the burnout rates go sky high. It turns out the opposite's not true. If we go above 20%, it doesn't sort of increase, um, sort of help with burnout beyond that, because other factors of burnout come into play at that point. But this is a critical amount of time. And it turns out that the, uh, 20%, as I said, is not 20% less hours. It's not 20% um, uh, of, of fewer responsibilities. It's 20% of engagement. It's being involved in something that matters. And it turns out that engagement is the greatest antidote to burnout. And engagement gives people vigor, gives people dedication, real absorption to work. It gives you the energy that you need to do the other 80%. So the Mayo has some really interesting schema that they've put forward. Um, and so this is a, a diagram, maybe you can see that, I'm not sure in the back, um, where they've identified seven different key areas, all actionable, um, that if addressed well, can help, or if not addressed well, can hurt the where you are in that burnout scale. So these are workload and job demands, sense of control and flexibility, we're in charge um, of our own destiny, work-life integration, social support and community at work, organizational culture and values being aligned, um, efficiency and resources, this is a big one, think EMR, and then right here in the center is meaning and work. If these are not optimized, it leads to burnout. If these are more optimized, it leads to engagement. The article also really stressed that systems interventions are as important, if not more important, than individual interventions. So it's not the sole responsibility of us as physicians or individuals in healthcare to address their own burnout. As a matter of fact, they point out that a lot of leadership, um, well-meaning in addressing this issue, create a lot of ways for individual 
um, uh, contributions toward decreasing burnout, you know, whether they're mindfulness lectures or, or things that are intended to help you on a, on a one-on-one basis improve. However, it's the system, and it can often be seen as, um, uh, as not genuine, if the system doesn't support the same kinds of measures. And they have a whole grid, and here they kind of lay them out in these little icons, a whole grid in actionable ways that both the individual and the system, as well as organizations, which is where NECA comes in. Remember NECA? We're supposed to be talking about NECA. Um, so it's a way that the organizations can also impart some of these, um, or impact some of these um, areas to really help us as individuals. And if all of those pieces can help, then you do get start to impact burnout. So for the purposes of this talk, I'm gonna focus on three that I think um, in sort of hindsight um, have been um, the, probably the three main lessons that NECA has brought beyond specifics to, specific to congenital cardiology. And that's cultivating community, aligning values and strengthening culture, and providing resources to promote resilience and self-care. So in broad strokes, the lessons from NECA really, th I think, are that regional collaboration does bring meaning. We were able to, and I'll go into the details of this, develop some quality initiatives that improve care. And we're also able to have some real meaningful, um, measurable contributions to the field. And there's a whole, a whole bunch of research on motivation, what, what helps to motivate people. And a sense of progress is one. And when you can point to progress, it keeps you going. What maybe we really didn't realize initially, um, but kind of grew out of um, the strength of the organization, was that NECA really did improve physician well-being. And it did so by connecting to that sense of meaning and purpose. And by giving us a sense of control, we actually got to create the organization and, 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 and move it forward in the way that we felt was important. Um, it reduced the feeling of isolation, and it gave us this incredible fellowship with like-minded colleagues. So a little bit of historical perspective. As I said, it's an incredible honor to be here to be speaking at Dr. Kermione's lecture because Leon was actually one of the pillars that I turned to um, before this organization was founded. So as um, you have seen, um, he has practiced in the region for uh, a very long time um, and was able to actually see how the region grew and developed um, and spent many years really perfecting that um, in his home state of Connecticut, but also impacting people globally um, in terms of resuscitation efforts and uh, teaching in pediatric cardiology. Um, so I drove down and met with Leon on a, just a, one of the most enjoyable days that I've ever spent. He's a wonderful storyteller. I haven't um, had the opportunity um, to spend any time with him. Um, and really kind of tried to get a sense of the flavor of what was it like um, back in the day when pediatric cardiology was really starting to organize within the New England region. And what lessons could be learned from that that were both important to take forward and important not to repeat. And out of that, um, he really gave me the, um, the fire to push this forward and realize that this was something that the region absolutely needed at the time we were starting this organization. So thank you, Leon. So there's definitely been many efforts of regional collaboration even within pediatric cardiology. So in the 1970s, we're just starting to really be able to successfully do some neonatal surgery um, and to be able to get some of these babies born with congenital heart disease to survive. So realizing this, um, a group in New England formed the New England Regional Infant Cardiac Program. And this was really intended specifically to look at um, 
infant cardiac care around New England and how to um, optimize it. And there was a landmark publication, Pediatrics, a very lengthy um, article in 1980. Uh, it's actually a fascinating read um, and goes into great detail um, as the first time a region cooperatively analyzed care for critical congenital heart disease. And this picture here, which is actually not, no, um, is not uh, staged. Um, I'm not a doctor, I just play one on TV, even though it totally looks like it, doesn't it? Um, this is actually um, Dr. Flyer, who's, um, Dr. Filer, who is, um, well, is a cardiologist at Boston Children's, um, who is one of the organizers of the infant cardiac program. Um, and they had just far-reaching um, aspirations during the time that they were collecting data to assess things from transportation, how you get these babies around New England. EMS system was not developed the way it is today. Communications between community physicians and centers. Um, so the, the kind of how do we share information back and forth. Even just communication in general. Pagers weren't even really a thing at the time. Um, cost of diagnostic and surgical procedures, not just cost as in morbidity and mortality, but actually financial cost. Education of parents, psychosocial elements, outcomes, things that we consider valuable today, way ahead of their time in identifying all of these things in the healthcare of the moment. And out of this remarkable work, mortality rates actually declined, especially for out-of-hospital um, uh, mortality of these babies. And there was a, um, a an incredible increase awareness by community physicians. And I'd be willing to bet, I'd be curious to hear from folks who work here, I'd be willing to bet that that, um, that communication um, and that feeling of, of a fabric of support and tapestry, um, I bet you that persists today. The transparency of results between centers really led to improved survival statistics, and even some centers realizing that they need to discontinue their services and consolidate services, something that is very contentious still today. But if you're looking at it in terms of patient care, these are some decisions that we as a field um, really have to look at together. And again, this is from many years ago, and the lessons are still important today. So after the, um, that publication, um, uh, the sort of Buzz remained, and so um, the pediatric cardiologist um, formed the Northeast Pediatric Cardiology Society in 1983. Um, so this was all pre-NECA. Um, here is, um, actually have a stack of all of these old brochures. Um, and here is a stack, from, here is a, a screenshot of the very first one um, in September of 1983. It was held in Hyannis. Um, and some things never change. Um, the Friday night was the introductory cocktail party. Um, and then sandwiched between things like um, measurement of extravascular water in infants and children following cardiac surgery um, was can collaborative regional data promote the search for causes of congenital heart disease? So back then, they were asking the same questions. And by the way, this um, was the initial um, a few years of what was known as the Baltimore-Washington Infant study, which has produced just um, really priceless data. Um, and uh, this was the one I think, I believe it was the first presentation. Um, if not, it was early on in their work. And then after coffee, of course, everybody had to have um, the clam bake. Um, and this organization continued for 10 years um, and people met yearly really to share this growth of research and everybody, there's so much thinking and there's so much possibility um, and the need to really convene, um, to socialize and to share this, these efforts um, kept this organization going until really it got to the point in the early 1990s where people were beginning to turn more internally. Our technology was really advancing, the ability to do cardiac cath interventions was starting to really take off. 
Um, and people started to really kind of center into their own care and, and, and spend more time internally um, taking care of patients. So for the next decade, um, there was a lot of, of, of very you know, explosive work within our field, but really sort of siloed. Um, and so the, the ties within New England weren't kept as strong, although a lot of people don't move very far. So there certainly were people who had trained in some of the centers in New England who remained in New England. But still, there was a lot of growth, more sort of um, uh, individualized kinds of care. Um, and that was where I came on in the early um, 2000s, or I started thinking about this organization in the early 2000s as I looked around and realized that we were all individually operating and everybody was saying like, oh, you know, I, I really don't know how to manage X um, because we don't have enough patients to know. I might have half a dozen, Felice may have half a dozen, but we don't have enough to really know what we're doing in the field. And so there was a lot of, um, of, of just um, best guesses. And the more you start realizing as you're talking to various people that they all said the same thing. So well, what if we like took our six and our six and, our, and what if we pooled those together? And, and if we had some sort of collaboration with the expertise that's within New England, wouldn't we be able to make some progress? So maybe we had been operating individually long enough that it was time to really turn together and pool our interests. And thanks to Dr. Kamenis, uh, we set about doing this. So even back long before, um, there's very deep New England roots in trying to organize as a field and make an impact. John Warren was actually the um, one who um, created the New England Journal of Medicine. And he did so because he looked around and he said, you know what, London, Paris, really far advanced beyond, uh, beyond Boston. Boston's really behind the times. And he said, in order to improve care, doctors needed to communicate with others. They needed to talk with one another. And of course, the New England Journal of Medicine still stands as a premier journal worldwide right now. Paul Dudley White was one of cardiologists who was one of the founders of the American Heart Association. And he said at the time there was an almost unbelievable, unbelievable ignorance about heart disease. This is adult um, heart disease. And at the time, heart disease patients were considered doomed and limited to complete bed rest. Now, for those of you who um, have been around for a while, that can sound very familiar to how people thought about congenital heart disease not very long ago. So he recognized the need for a national organization to share research findings and promote further study to say, I don't really think these patients are doomed. We really need to figure out how to make this better. So out of those deep New England roots and some more recent organizations was starting to grow um, an idea. And the idea for the organization was a little bit different in New England regional program was really focused on um, infant cardiac surgery and outcomes um, in systems. The Pediatric Society, Pediatric Cardiac Cardiology Society was kind of focused on sharing research and fellowship. Um, some of the um, older roots um, were really looking at disseminating information um, and breaking down barriers of how we think about things. So the New England Congenital Cardiology Association grew out of this idea that, that we were now beyond some of that, and it was time to really take a look at where we were in the field, join together, and see what we could do as a grassroots organization in our own communities to make a difference. We have a lot of strengths in New England, not just the historical strengths. And that said, it's very beautiful. Um, here's my uh, great home state of Maine, that's my, my hometown. Um, the beautiful fall foliage of New Hampshire. The green, green hills of Vermont the history that is Boston and Massachusetts, the beautiful harbors of Rhode Island, and of course, the incredible pastoral state of Connecticut, which was my home state for a while. 
So with all of these incredible areas, we thought about forming an organization that joined all of our states. We have a deep history together anyway. Um, and then rotate meetings around so that we can all share, we're pretty, pretty proud of our states. We can all share um, the beauty of our home states, some of our home um, culture, and start to come together as a, as a group and as an organization. So the snowflake wound up being a bit of a, um, of a, um, of a guiding light. Um, there's a nice little quote from um, uh, um, the guy who he actually learned how to photograph these snowflakes this is one of his photographs and he said snowflakes are one of nature's most fragile things but just look what they can do when they stick together and anybody who has suffered through a New England winter knows exactly what he was talking about so the snowflake became um, our logo with each arm representing one of the New England states no arm any more or less important than the other arm and our mission was broadly to improve care for children and adults with known or suspected congenital or acquired heart disease of childhood. We set about trying to sort of divide how we wanted to spend our time, and that was by these interrelated domains of communication, advocacy, um, education, research, and quality improvement. But this was really all on a backdrop of fellowship. Um, and it was this fellowship that has become, I think, um, one of the most lasting parts of what the organization has brought and I think has become one of the backbones for how this can address burnout. And I think um, as I talk through the rest of the talk, I think hopefully you can think of ways in your own lives where something similar can have a similar impact on you. So a little bit of a reality check. Um, uh, before we had our first meeting, we knew very well that one of New England's strengths was how much really um, sort of internationally known expertise was in the area. That means international egos, too. Um, and it also means um, that there was certainly very well-known competition between centers. So we were asking the lamb and the lion to lie down together. Um, so we had to think carefully about that. And that required really kind of going and trying to identify what were our shared and common goals. Because really, institutional um, institutional territorial needs exist but individual physician driven passion is separate from that and could we like the un could we divorce ourselves for a moment leave it at the door you go back out it's still there we're not ignoring it but divorce ourselves from that for a second and focus on what do we care about who is going to be the voice for patients with congenital heart disease if not us who and if we could focus on that could the rest of the stuff stay outside the door? And by doing that, we were able to, um, and I was gonna bring some photos and I decided that I wouldn't, um, but we were able to bring characters that if you knew them, you would never have thought they would sit in the same room together, let alone be relatively civil and maybe even have a beer together after, after the meeting. Um, and so by doing that and by focusing not on individuals and not on, um, on common practices, but on what we want to make better and looking forward, we were able, able to really come together. So a little bit more about New England. Um, I think as you all know, um, a lot of people outside of New England, this is like a single puzzle piece on the map, like every other like, piece on the map has an individual state except New England, which is a whole block. Um, so we're very compact in geography, which means we can actually do that. We can actually drive around to all six states without too much trouble. Um, but the population is not evenly distributed. So you can see here in this graph, Massachusetts and Connecticut take the bulk of the population of New England. 
So people live here, cows live here, I live here, um, and the bulk of the pediatric cardiac providers also are in those areas. As a matter of fact, Boston Children's has about, I don't know, we're up to like 75 cardiologists now, which is about the same as everywhere else in New England. Um, so we really wanted to focus on not allowing a region or a place to have an institutional flavor, but rather to have it be, again, externally focused around our patients. And so to travel around, we held our first, actually, two meetings up here in Maine. Um, and then we have literally traveled around, and we have our rotation, and every state gets to host each year. Um, and that has worked very well. We have another problem. Yeah. <laughs> so most of you know this, um, but um, as much as we joke about it, um, there really is something if you start thinking about this. If you are south of a certain line in Connecticut and you see somebody walk by with a Red Sox hat, it brings about a certain immediate feeling. Vice versa, if you're somewhere north of that magic line and you see somebody walk around with the ugly Yankees hat, I mean with the Yankees hat, um, it brings around another feeling. And so there are these implicit biases that we carry around in ourselves that we may or may not be aware of. And we were very aware of this before we started the organization and started bringing people together. But I was not as aware of just how much implicit bias plays into not only our delivery of healthcare, but the way that we communicate as colleagues and the way that we focus on our field um, until I looked into this a little bit deeper. So I don't have time, unfortunately, to go too much into implicit bias, um, which is a fascinating topic, but I'll touch on it just a little bit. So implicit, or what some people call hidden bias, are our attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, our actions and decisions in an unconscious manner. And if you've never taken it, I would encourage everybody to go online and search for the implicit association test. It's run out of a, um, a graduate student started it at Harvard. Um, the, implicit, the implicit association test allows you to take a test to uncover what hidden biases you may have. And they have things in gender and race, um, obesity, all, a bunch of different areas. Um, to really let it, to sort of open our own eyes about how we see and how we process information. We're processing information all of the time. Um, and once you start to recognize that, that's the first step. We do, there's a lot of literature out there in how this can affect healthcare. There's a lot less information in how it can affect how we as colleagues work together. Um, but I found this to be really interesting and important. Um, and, and, and it's really humbling when you realize how much of it you have in yourself. Um, so I try not to make a face when a, a Yankees cap goes by. Um, but I put this picture of um, this Richard Scarry book up here to remind um, me to tell you a quick little story about how um, you just don't realize how much of this is around until it hits you in the face. So this is um, Richard Scarry book showing this little medical family. There's the um, daddy, Dr. Pig. There's his nurse wife, two little kids. Um, so one day, many years ago, after I had already moved to Maine, my twins were, I don't know, somewhere probably around six or seven, and my youngest was four or five. And we were driving home, and we were talking about um, who they knew who were doctors. So it was like, oh, their little baseball coach was a doctor, and you know, daddy's friend was a doctor, daddy's a doctor. You know, and they were coming up with different names. Our neighbor's a doctor. We're driving home, driving home. We got all the way as far as the driveway, and they're still they're like, sort of running out of people. So I'm like, who else? So they're in the back seat, just kind of scratching their heads. So finally, I like, okay, maybe I sort of slammed on the brake. And I stopped the car, and I turned around, and I said, who else in this car? And they all kind of looked at me until finally one of them said, oh, you? I thought you were a nurse. <gasps> now, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I mean, we grew up, they, they grew up in a two-physician household. 
who knew that the gender stereotypes that were prevalent in things like Richard Scarry's book, which I never read a single Richard Scarry book after that, uh, who knew was, was, was penetrating so much that those biases or perceptions were, um, were, were coming out that way um, in, in a household where we wouldn't have expected it. So it's humbling. And if you take the implicit association test, they have a warning, warning people to, that I sort of, I can't remember the wording, but it's sort of like, this could cause psychological distress. It's really, really fascinating to recognize things about yourself. Okay, so I don't have time to do the implicit association test and to play with that angle, but I, I thought it would be worth trying one little thing about perception. Um, so the brain is processing things all the time, the way we act, um, the, way we talk, the way we talk to patients, um, the way we see things, the way we um, perceive um, how procedures are going, et cetera. So if you look at this picture of this object, would you be able to tell which block was darker and which block was lighter? I think most people can easily tell. Um, it looks like the top is darker, light is lighter. It turns out that's actually not true. And if you change your perception just by hiding the horizon, they're actually exactly the same color. Now, I did not change the color. All I did was put up that black bar. They are exactly the same color. But our eyes and our brains are processing all the time so that we can't tell the difference. So if we don't think that our perceptions are Yankees versus Red Sox, are I trained in Boston, I trained at Yale, um, are impacting us, then we really need to think through that. And the only way to do that is to be able to communicate with each other and collaborate and realize how we can go beyond. So addressing bias takes perspective taking into account, which is the cognitive component of empathy, and it inhibits the unconscious stereotypes and prejudices. There's an emotional regulation skill that comes up. You start to empathize with others when you view as part of a larger group, when it's not one sports team versus another, but it's a group of congenital cardiologists. You have a whole different conversation. And there's partnership building skills. We're on the same team. So we founded the organization in 2009, um, brought some um, really, really uh, had early buy-in from some of the um, biggest names in the field. Uh, there was a lot of competition, there was a lot of mistrust, um, but it was, you know, sort of nobody ever outgrows seventh grade, so once they heard so-and-so was coming, then so-and-so was also coming, and we used that to our advantage, and people came to the table. Um, and the first year was spent a lot in building trust. There was pre-work and then work there. Um, and the second work was really, just like Erickson's stages of development, starting to develop some, autonom some autonomy. And in the words of Henry David Thoreau, we must walk consciously only partway toward our goal and then leap into the dark to our success, and that's what we did. From there, we started developing some stuff for growth. We developed governance, bylaws. We had to stumble through some membership software, growing a website. We were able to hit fairly early on a highly prolific QI committee um, that had widespread participation, so we were able to really get some early engagement um, and some early wins, which, as I said, one of the greatest motivators is a sense of progress, and so we were able to point to that. We started to get some name recognition. NECA all of a sudden became a thing, um, as opposed to people going, what is NECCA? Um, and some national recognition. We were asked to share our experiences and, um, and report um, as an, at, at national meetings in terms of the success of what a grassroots organization can actually do. And it showed, and during that, we were able to focus our shift from who are we and what do we want to accomplish and how do we do it to really external goals, how do we want to move the, the field forward. So that one single snowflake really did start to become and coalesce toward a larger thing. 
So one of the lessons learned that I would not have predicted at the outset was the scent of Ubuntu. If anybody has heard this term, it's an African term that means we are who we are because of each other. People can't exist in isolation. It is only through interconnections that we develop our shared humanity. And it's this shared humanity in this sense that we're all in it together that not only helps our field and our patients, but really helps ourselves as physicians um, and people within healthcare combat burnout. I want to touch only briefly on social networks. Um, I think this is a really critical part of, um, of why an organization like NECA and any organizations that you can either start yourselves or become involved with are really important. Um, I had to make choices, so I wound up cutting um, this portion of the talk just down to this one slide. Um, to talk a little bit about how social networks influence our ideas. So just like implicit biases out there, our networks themselves, as many of you know from some of the threats to our democracy and seeing some of the way the media um, uh, operates um, within certain social networks, really influences pretty much everything. Um, and there's um, an interesting book uh, written um, uh, by some folks who worked um, out of the Harvard system actually. Um, about being connected and everything from health behaviors to why the rich get richer. Um, but the interesting thing about this is that health behaviors in specific are very highly influenced by your social networks. And what we were trying to create was, in essence, an organization that was a social network. And it turns out that if your friend influences your behavior, your friend's friend actually influences that. And actually goes out to three degrees. So your friend's 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 behavior influence your own. And the more connected you are with your network, and the richer that network and the more inputs you're getting, the better. But the more isolated you are within that, the more you become more and more and more isolated. Um, and that was what we were seeing within New England. It was time to now really interconnect those networks better. Brief shift to this idea of grassroots. Um, many of you may have heard of um, Alex's lemonade stand. This is Alex, she was a little girl with cancer, and she decided that she wanted to host a lemonade stand to benefit pediatric cancer research, and she had big dreams, really wanted to raise a lot of money. Um, and this idea and her innocence and her enthusiasm um, really spawned a whole network um, and now Alex's Lemonade Stand is one of the biggest um, fundraising organizations. Um, they've raised from this one little lemonade stand, she unfortunately passed on, but her legacy remains. Um, and this one little lemonade stand idea has raised over $150 million for cancer research. They've spot sponsored over 1,000 different research projects. Um, it's absolutely remarkable to see the worldwide, actually, impact that this idea has had. So don't ever think a single person can't change things you can. With that, sort of a segue to money. Um, we were fortunate that at the same time that we developed NECA, we also developed the New England Congenital Cardiology Research Foundation. So this was a not-for-profit organization with a mission to sponsor research or QI for projects um, in congenital heart disease in New England. There's small grants, five to $25,000 annually. And we really set at the outset that we wanted collaborative multi-center projects. We really wanted to share. Now, I will say parenthetically, you don't need this to succeed in either creating something that you see in a de division, department, community, et cetera. We actually, if I dare say it publicly, underutilize the resources here. This, we're a dues-supported organization. We pay dues, and that pays our, our, our um, expenses. Um, so this was not critical to our success. So I don't want people to think that if, oh, if you don't have that, you can't do it. As a matter of fact, I still think it's underutilized. If anybody wants to put in a grant, um, so don't think that this is necessary, but I do admit it was helpful and it has come in at key times. Over the last decade, 
We've made tremendous progress as an organization, and I'm really, really proud to say that as I pass the baton um, as immediate past president, and I'm actually not even on the board now, out of design, that it needs to, an organization needs to not depend on any person, it needs to depend on itself to stand up, um, that I've been able to walk away knowing um, that it is in really good hands and it's continued to look forward. Um, and that 10 years of progress, I think one key thing also has come out of that, and that's an idea of mindful focus. So if you look at this picture of all these almonds, most people, I'm not sure how well it projects, but can you see it looks like it's moving? Um, so there's so many different energy and excitement that can come out of these meetings. But to me, it will not survive unless you can see that sense of progress. So out of all of this wonderful excitement, if two months later you haven't done a darn thing and it sort of fizzles, after a while people are gonna sort of realize it's sort of useless and why bother? So instead, we've tried very hard every year to try and pick at least one thing that is achievable. So if you look up at this picture and you look at just one almond, try that for a second, just look at just one almond, do you notice how immediately the whole picture quiets and it doesn't move anymore? That mindful focus of picking just one thing out of all of the noise can allow us to start to achieve results. So some of our accomplishments, we have a quality improvement committee, has done a lot of work, ongoing work. Um, we did these um, um, uh, management plans, um, and from that, I'll show you, we have a couple of studies that got published. Um, we had an early pacemaker um, and ICD success story, which I'll share with you. We have two prospective regional collaborative projects, which is kind of impressive when you think about the limited resources and money that we have. And we have two ongoing prospective studies right now. Our communication committee um, has done regular newsletters and website, keep people engaged. Um, and we also recently started a regional case conference, sort of like a regional M&M, um, that was really successful in its first go-round. People were very um, engaged and involved. And then our advocacy committee has recently just decided that it's actually going to specifically look at physician well-being. So this was never on our explicit radar. It was never one almond. Uh, and now it is. And I think that being part of that conversation, I think an organization like this, not only your systems, your individual institutions, and yourselves, but an organization like this can make a difference. So we have two um, first publications, one on chest pain guidelines and one on syncope, two common things that we see. Our pacemaker quality improvement project um, realized that there's a lot of people with devices, so we created a registry um, and some local champions and sort of set, set up a system. Enrolled 652 patients in the first year, and they found that um, in the first sort of, I think it was about a year and a half, two years, um, before there were 22% of these patients who were lost to follow-up, and just by organizing ourselves, that went down to 4%. They also found that it was still really difficult for patients, even though they were found them, to get them to actually transmit and so they can take care of their pacemakers. So by realizing that, and with the strength of this organization and now a network, they were able to, ex to secure external funding to try and actually make some real, actionable, measurable ways to actually get the patients to send their information in. There's a sudden cardiac death initiative. This grew out of um, a lot of people have, um, a, a, it's a highly emotional event when someone has a sudden cardiac, a young person has a sudden cardiac event. What do you do for that patient to an answer questions of why? What do you do for the family? Who do you investigate? How do you investigate it? What are you supposed to do with tissue? Um, how do you find the medical examiners? So out of that and realizing that we now had a network and we now had this sort of, you know, people knew where to go within different states, um, we were able to organize um, and pull together an actual algorithm. So now, if such a tragic event occurs, there's actually an entry point in. 
and there's a, uh, a one consolidated way working with the medical examiners in each state to address this and address this in a way that is timely minimizes the stress on the providers who are trying to answer questions and the poor families who are lost and alone and try and also learn from it from our field and the more you start to work together the more people start to realize ways that you can work together so there's a number of ways of looking at um, domains of physical well of physician well-being and um, one of them is a culture of wellness and I think that was really important to us before we even started the organization efficiency of practice sometimes really comes down to individual institutions like think EMRs although I do believe that things like QI projects that we can do regionally impact some of that efficiency of practice too so don't don't close your eyes to those opportunities and then personal resilience when you really start to feel that engagement and vigor that really drives you to continue on in other aspects of your life so gratitude promotes personal and professional growth self-care and ties to each other and it's not happy people are thankful it's thankful people who are happy so the lessons that we have learned is that by cultivating community we get shared value values measurable progress common goals that's very motivating by aligning our values as shown in the Mayo work we have this sort of evolutionary craving for connection we are social creatures um, we have this sort of tribalism and we, we really crave that and by by meeting that you start to really improve your own vigor um, which promotes resilience and the organization and organizing combats isolation and feeling powerless we start to develop some sense of control so more meetings actually do yield less burnout and there's been a fair number of articles on this as a matter of fact we polled our members about whether they wanted an additional meeting we meet every fall um, the overwhelming majority said yes we actually want to meet more and when asked what do we want to do two things came to the to the forefront one even though we already spent time away from our families we wanted to meet again on a weekend we wanted to do so to work together we actually wanted working meetings we didn't want people to come lecture us about this other thing we wanted actually time to get work done and we wanted to drink so um, I thought I would show you just it's like 30 seconds like watching somebody else's vacation slides but just 30 seconds of just kind of a uh, pictures of us together when I was looking through for some pictures um, I was surprised that um, uh, almost all of them featured Seth so <laughs> this is a tribute to you Seth this term that's evolved through the years of our NECA friends so the people that you only see once a year at the meeting but you really look forward to seeing every year as a matter of fact I can judge the success of our past meetings by the noise level at the first coffee break so you literally can hardly hear each other at the first coffee break because everybody's so excited to reconnect and that to me says everything so there's a quote from Henry Ford that coming together is a beginning keeping together is progress and working together is success and I'm going to leave you with one final quote as you think about some of the lessons that we've learned of, of making real progress in the field, looking beyond sort of the, 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 the financial and, and real true business end of healthcare, which is absolutely a part of all of our lives. 
But being able to step aside from that and connect as physicians and connect as healthcare providers and to try and make a difference in our field. And that's a quote from none other than Anne Frank, who said, how wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. Thank you.